on today's episode. I am a tech reporter by trade, and I had noticed that there was a very high level of robotics and automation that were going into warehouses and supply chains. And it was this new kind of robotics. It was this science fiction robotics. And I just thought, God, this is such an incredible transition in history. I need to know more about these automated warehouses. And frankly, it was just through collaboration with others that people started to prod me. And they said, well, do you really want to write about robots? There's this whole complicated system getting us everything that we rely on every day. Why don't you write about that from start to finish? And so when I was in the middle of that epic journey, at one point I was standing on the docks at a port in Vietnam, and I got a text from a friend, and it was like, hey, have you heard about this outbreak in China? Does that affect you while you're over there in Southeast Asia? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm too busy reporting this book. I didn't know that the project of reporting the book was about to become the project of reporting everything that I was interested in as it was going to be strained to its breaking point by the pandemic. I'm your host, Greg Fentness. Stay tuned. This is One Big Question. Christopher Mims is a columnist for The Wall Street Journal whose technology column keywords is an absolute must-read. Now, you can't see this on the podcast, but I have my Wall Street Journal app open, and Keywords is one of my favorites on the journal. In his column, Christopher unpacks the complexities of the technology sector. Things like ultra-wideband, EV batteries, NFTs. What are NFTs? And a million other acronyms that I and many other readers are trying to understand in today's world. Christopher makes sense of a world that is rapidly transforming because of the complex intersections between technology, business, government, and, of course, society. He's also written a new book called Arriving Today, From Factory to Front Door, Why Everything Has Changed About How and What We Buy. And in it, he takes a deep dive behind the scenes, telling us the story of the people and the industries who make it possible for us to simply push a button on our phones and find a package at our front door just a day or two later. Christopher is an Emory graduate who studied neuroscience and behavioral biology, and I wanted to talk to him today about one of the biggest issues facing everybody in our world today, and that is the global supply chain. Christopher, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So in this podcast, I'm going to start with the big question. For the last couple of years, anytime there's been a delay or a shortage, the global supply chain gets blamed. And I think for our listeners, they probably, many of them have never heard the term global supply chain until the pandemic. So for our listeners and everyone in the Emory community, can you explain what is going on in the global supply chain? So many things are going on in the global supply chain. Um, maybe we'll, 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 we'll start with the pandemic. That was the big one. Um, you know, the global supply chain is, of course, how goods are transported to us. And, you know, many goods are manufactured in Asia. So that's, a you know, a, a journey of at least 14,000 miles, give or take, across oceans and continents. But, uh, you know, supply chains are also what we used to call factories because every single finished object that we buy is made of many components and ultimately raw materials which had to travel through their own supply chains before they could arrive at uh, you know a, a point of final assembly to get to us so if you talk about something as complicated as a cell phone you know it's 300 
parts at least the the cumulative supply chain miles embodied in a cell phone could be you know a hundred thousand or more it's it's components and raw materials crisscrossing the globe there are a lot of single points of failure because those industries have been concentrated which means you know if you want something really simple like capacitors well you go to capacitor village or town or city in china and that's where those things come from and if capacitor town gets shut down by a pandemic well everybody who needs capacitors which is every electronics manufacturer in the world is is gonna have to dip into their reserves and and um we saw this over and over again throughout the pandemic because of port shutdowns and factory shutdowns and all the rest and you know as we all know it just it became personal because suddenly you couldn't get um a vehicle or you couldn't get that webcam that you needed to work from home or you know if you're trying to build a new home you can't get doors for six months uh because of a completely different supply chain where there are disruptions so we have just we have lived in this unusually benign trade environment for so long for as long as i've been alive it feels like and then we started to have these sort of trade wars um, under the last administration and then it became a pandemic and now those trade wars have continued and now we have a shooting war in Europe which is having all kinds of unforeseen consequences for these global supply chains and I don't know about you but personally what it has made me feel is oh wow the, the, the globe is more interconnected than ever we're more interdependent than ever and you really cannot untangle that web anymore like you can't just no country is an island if you want to make anything you you're going to get those goods from all over the world and if there's a disruption anywhere if there's a natural disaster if there's a shooting war if there's a trade war um it's really going to gum up the works and that's why we have also all this inflation now i mean there's a bunch of reasons for inflation but a big one is we just can't get stuff it's supply chains at the end of the day So supply chains are this kind of, I think, previously kind of boring and unsexy topic. They certainly weren't very excited when I started tackling them maybe like three and a half years ago when I started my journey to write this book. But they have unfortunately become this issue of of central importance because, you know, we made shipping cheap and easy. The shipping container happened. Global air freight happened. And we gained this ability to move things all around the world. and, And it created an interdependence that now means if if any one of these nodes in these global supply chains is having a problem, we all have a problem. So Christopher, you mentioned uh, when you started working on this, it was before the pandemic, and your book came out just at the beginning of the pandemic. Did you have any inkling of what was going to come in the next uh, next phase of what we're living through during the pandemic? No. I had no clue. I mean, this is a great example of, you know, fortune favors the prepared mind or, or misfortune for the globe. Um, I, I got interested in how things are moving around for totally unrelated reasons. It was because I am a tech reporter by trade, and I had noticed that um, there was a very high level of robotics and automation that were going into warehouses and supply chains. And it was this new kind of robotics. It was this science fiction robotics that was flexible and adaptable and really was replacing humans in many roles, one for one. And I just thought to myself, wow, this has never happened before in all my history of covering tech. This feels like a sea change. It's linked to AI and computer vision and all of these other things where robots are becoming, if not like us, 
you know, more, more like animals or like beasts of burden or something. And I just thought, God, this is such an incredible transition in history. I need to know more about these automated warehouses. And frankly, it was just through collaboration with others that people started to prod me. And they said, well, do you really want to write about robots? What? There's this whole complicated system getting us everything that we rely on every day. Why don't you write about that from start to finish? And um, being pathologically optimistic, I just thought, oh, sure, that'll be no problem. Like, I'll write that book. And so when I was in the middle of that epic journey, at one point I was standing on the docks at a port in Vietnam, and I got a text from a friend, and it was like, hey, have you heard about this uh, outbreak in China? Does that affect you while you're over there in Southeast Asia? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm too busy (laughs) reporting this book. I didn't know that the project of reporting the book was about to become the project of reporting everything that I was interested in as it was going to be strained to its breaking point by the pandemic. So here's here's the second big question. When will we get back to a normal? You know, I used to think, oh, well, there are these, uh, you know, backlogs, for example, at the port of Los Angeles. You know, at one point there was up to 100 ships waiting in line there. Uh, and these are massive ships. Each one is the size of a skyscraper. Normally, there's zero ships waiting in line there. And I thought, okay, you know, there was this kind of surge in demand because of the pandemic and uh, a lack of availability of goods. And so they all got bunched up into this one period of time. And and we'll just work through that backlog like we always do, like anybody does when they get behind. But I think that now we're entering a different kind of abnormal where we're having what are called idiosyncratic shortages, which means that an individual good or class of goods will become unavailable or expensive because of just some random reason that's just exacerbated by the existing um, challenges in global supply chains. So I don't know when we'll get back to normal. I mean, I, I think, for example, automobiles, I keep waiting for the chip shortage to end there And, you know, there was just an announcement yesterday, another plant got shut down uh, in America. So I I, I sometimes think, well, if we're going to get back to normal, it's going to be a new normal and it'll be in like 2025. And, you know, it's going to be a very different kind of new normal. As, as you said earlier, Christopher, the uh, the global supply chain has been enabled by globalization, ease of trade, trade policies, flows of money flows of technology and intellectual property. But I get a sense a lot of that is is starting to change. Our country is rethinking it. Europe is rethinking it. Uh, Asian countries are rethinking it. So how do, you, how do you see the connection between the technology questions and the supply chain questions with the broader trends in globalization? I, I do think that, you know, globalization is not, it's not, it's not going to go away. But, but what I'm hearing is that these supply chains are going to get reordered. So, I mean, there's all these kind of awkward names for it now. You know, there's this concept of reshoring where you bring manufacturing back to within the bounds of your country. People call it ally shoring. Like you, you imagine these two giant uh, geopolitically aligned blocks where it's like, you know, Russia's primarily trading with China and some other countries, you know, in the U.S. and, and the EU and others are worried about, well, how do we make sure that we always have supplies of microchips if there's ever like a war in the South China Sea or something? So maybe we need to give Intel a bunch of money to 
bring microchip production back to the U.S., which they're doing. Um, but also, you know, every other part of that supply chain, because there's lots of other things you have to do to get from, you know, sand to, a, you know, a finished smartphone. There's so many steps. There's so many different places it has to go. So people are saying, well, if we can't bring that all within the bounds of the United States of America, for example, maybe some of it can be in Europe. Some of it can be in politically neutral parts of Southeast Asia, etc. So I think that those links between all these different factories and mines and everything else in the global supply chain are getting some of them are getting strained or snapped but then they reform right because there's this huge discipline called logistics or operations where there's tons of people who are just sweating in the back uh kind of not getting the credit they deserve who are who are desperately scrambling this whole time to make this work by the way we shouldn't forget that the ceo of the world's most valuable company got there because he's an expert in this that's that this is how tim cook made his bones logistics you'd think oh this is the least interesting part of what apple does but he's ceo now <laughs> and apple's doing better than ever there's a reason greg i have a question for you sure as i am doing a lot of my research and, and journalism on this I find that I am more than ever talking to academics, researchers, people at universities, because we're in this time of instability where the people with titles and the C-level executives, they don't have the answers anymore. And so when I'm looking for solutions, I end up having to go to researchers and be like, well, what was that pie in the sky thing you've been thinking about for the past 10 years that you were just getting funded to pursue because of your own curiosity? And I'm just wondering, like, what do you, in this time of transformation, do you ever, how does that change your sense of mission in terms of like, well, you know, what are our scholars doing? Or what do you see them, what do you see their role in terms of getting their research out there or advising people in need I mean, I realize it's really broad, but I want to leave it open-ended because I want to hear what you're excited about. Well, I'll answer that question. It's a, it's a great uh, question and a great discussion at, at two levels. Um, so American research universities, of which Emory is, uh, is, is, is one of the best, we are the only institutions in society that we have brilliant people, and we say, go off and ask some tough questions, uh, figure out how you might answer those questions. You might uh, Maybe it's a question nobody else has thought about or a way of approaching a problem nobody thinks is worthwhile pursuing. Um, those kind of pers- uh, questioning and that kind of research um, can't be done in business, uh, can't be done on your own. Um, it, ha- it takes a university with uh, really smart people with a broad range of expertise and deep knowledge in, in, in their field. Um, and so that's exactly what researchers do, uh, that um, the, uh, just in, in the health area, uh, the vaccines that have been much more effective than anybody ever thought they would be, that's based on a research that was just pie in the sky 20 years ago. And it was ready and available uh, when we need it. And that takes place every day at, at universities like Emory. And as I think then at the next level about the questions that you've been reporting on and the role of technology in, the, in a rapidly changing world and disruptions, 
there's certainly a technology component to that, but I think what we're really seeing now, there's a human and a societal component. How do we as individuals, how do we as organizations, how do we as societies with its, uh, its, its own ills and its own needs, how are we using technology and how is it being incorporated? And, and that's where I see Emory has a, has, a, has a very special role. And as we think about the things that we need to be working on at Emory, artificial intelligence is affecting everybody one way or the other, some directly, many indirectly. And we want to bring in the human component. Um, how is AI being used? How does artificial intelligence make decisions? Can we understand why those decisions are being made? How do we understand about ethics in decision-making? What is bias? How do we determine bias? How do we try to eliminate bias in the way automated decisions are being made? So these are the kind of things in, um, in uh, the humanities and the social sciences and the business in our health area that we're really interested in pursuing of that intersection between technology and how technology is used by humans. Well, I, I appreciate that answer because I think that's definitely, that intersection is where we kind of need people thinking about these issues the most and, and having the freedom of being at a research university to figure that stuff out. There were a lot of people I relied on during my book, during the research of my book, who had spent you know, a PhD's worth of their time to generate one report, a big report, granted. And that was, you know, and, and some of that was, you know, some of it was like about how humans are, um, you know, being managed by algorithm in Amazon's warehouses, which is really sort of foundational to my research uh, because it's for good and bad, right? It can be done well and it can be done in a way that's inhumane. But I was not confident about my conclusions, even having done a lot of reporting until I was able to sit down with a researcher who had interviewed, you know, hundreds of people and they were like, <laughs> definitively, this is the best evidence we have for how this operates. And that's not going to come from Amazon itself. It's not going to come from any government regulator. It's not going to come even from the deepest Wall Street Journal investigation. It's only going to come from a an academic researcher who's passionate about this stuff, who feels driven by a mission to study this. Well, you've seen it. Uh, that's the best explanation of why universities like Emory are so important, uh, that we have these talented, inquisitive faculty and researchers, and they have the freedom and the ability to pursue those questions. So as we finish up this podcast and we come back to the big question of supply chain, let me just ask you, as, a, as Christopher Mims, reporting on the supply chain and the disruptions, what's one personal example that the supply chain has affected you over the past two years? Well, one personal example is that I have a lot of kids in my life now and I'm driving them around a lot. And, uh, you know, as a reporter, I'm very conscious of my environmental impact. And I would love to switch out an aging vehicle for one of these, um, you know, more affordable electric vehicles that we've been promised that are just arriving now. I'd love to be part of that transition. And because of the uh, chip shortages and, and changes in manufacturing of automobiles, like, I think I'm like a lot of people right now where I'm like, oof, no, I'm just going to make my vehicle last as long as I can. Like, there's no, there's no uh, transition off fossil fuels yet 
for my household. I mean, that is a that is an extremely privileged answer, I know, but it has definitely made me um, acutely aware of the ways in which uh, I need to uh, be careful and be judicious in my own sort of personal and household consumption because you can't always count on things just being there when, you know, suddenly something breaks and you need to, you feel like you need to replace it. Well, I'll tell you my example. Uh, my, my wife and I, uh, my wife Carmel and I moved to Atlanta uh, in July of 2020. I used to say that was in the middle of the pandemic, not knowing it was it was the beginning. And of course, we moved into uh, Low Water, the, the beautiful home uh, for Emory's president. And um, although we moved some furniture, we needed some some other furniture, just uh, just normal things in the in the house. Uh, it was really hard to buy furniture in fall of 2020. There was no stock, and several of the stores couldn't even estimate when they'd be able to deliver some, some just regular regular household furniture. It's it's funny that you should mention that one because for whatever reason, in all of my research nothing got hit harder than furniture. <laughs> I think it's the way, I think it's just the way that it gets shipped to us. It's so bulky and it gets, it tends to get made far away. And it, you know, every furniture maker in the America, it turns out was relying on that affordable, reliable containerized shipping from Asia, which just got totally hammered by everything that happened. So I, I hope that you're not still um, sitting on inflatable or beanbag chairs in your home and you got some resolution for that. Well, we still have a beanbag chair, but uh, <laughs> one, uh, m- most of the things showed up. Uh, but we were following ship trackers, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, Christopher, this has been uh, wonderful to, to talk with you and get to, get to know you. As I said, I, I read your column in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, we are so proud here at Emory University with you and your reporting and what you're, you're doing to demonstrate the power of an Emory education. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And for any Emory parents or students listening to this, I would just say that uh, if you ever want any advice about getting into journalism or related fields, please reach out to me. Life hack: if you ever want to write to a Wall Street Journal reporter, just click on their byline. Our email addresses are right there. All right. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure.